Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hi, everyone. I'm John Verhoeven, and I was a cop back in Sydney in the 80s. And I'm Paul Verhoeven, John's son. I'm an author, and I wrote two books about Dad's time as a cop. The first five seasons of Loose Units spanned my time in general duties, forensics, my time as a firefighter, and even my stint running a funeral home. But this season, we're visiting the locations of Australia's most notorious, baffling, horrific crimes, and looking at what happened there. From Snowtown to the family, from the Morehouse murders to haunted highways, this season of Loose Units is your go-to guide to the worst crimes in Australian true crime history. Welcome to Loose Units, The Shadow Files. I'm going to read now from an article in The Dispatch from Tuesday, May the 31st, 1994. It's in the Australian News section, and the headline is Suspect Charged in Seven Murders. Now, I'm not going to read everything here because obviously this is the tail end of an incredibly complex, horrifying investigation. And it's the story Dad and I are going to be looking into over the coming weeks on Loose Units, The Shadow Files. But I will read here just to set the scene as to how this thing kind of first hit the public consciousness, or at least in in its biggest form. Sydney, Australia. The biggest manhunt in Australia's history came to a climax today when police charged a man with murdering seven backpackers and burying their bodies in a patch of forest called Executioner's Drop. Their remains were found in shallow graves near fire trails in Belangelo State Forest in southern New South Wales from September 1992 to November 1993. Topographical maps identify the region as Executioner's Drop. Now, I'm not going to go into the methods as to how they were dispatched because, frankly, during the research of this story, I was finding out stuff that many true crime buffs clearly already know about, at least to some degree, but I think Dad's analysis of this savagery and of this story will be kind of unprecedented. I'm really looking forward to diving into this case. And Dad, I think it's fair to say that this one is a difficult one to stomach. I mean, I was researching some of this methodology. You and I exchanged probably four or five five phone calls over the past couple of days, both kind of just going, is this... Is this really unusually violent and difficult to deal with, or is it just me? And we both kind of found each other consoling one another over, you know, kind of coaching each other into continuing on into this case. We've been putting this off for a long time. Do you think that's fair to say? Mm. In fact, I was surprised, Paul, because you felt that we needed a bit of a break from murder, (laughs) which is our core business. Dad, here's the thing, just quickly. It says true crime, right? Most people call this genre of podcast, of fiction, of TV, it's called true crime. But you're right. Typically speaking, it tends to fall into the murder category. But you and I really did try and move uh, laterally 
into kind of more unusual crimes lately. You know, with the Yuba County Five and other cases like that. But do you think it's fair to say that we kind of kept almost falling into the orbit of this case and finally had to succumb to its pull? It's a very famous case. Yeah. Um, they made a movie about it, ostensibly. Wolf Creek. Wolf Creek, a film that I tried to watch it for research purposes and I just shut it down. It's difficult, isn't it? Yeah. Not, I don't... And I, 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 quite frankly... I mean, there are some films, very famous films, that are very disturbing, mm. like The Exorcist, for example. Things like that where if you're going to be typecast for the rest of your life, I kind of wonder sometimes why certain actors take on certain roles. You mean if you play a character mm. like the one in Wolf Creek, Correct. how you are ever going to escape that? How are you going to get a role on Play School? Hang on. Wasn't he in Play School? That's a bloody good point. I'd, I'd have to fact check that. Yeah. But that's before. Yeah. I'm saying you do that then. But you can't go back. Is what you, can't, you can't do yeah. something so bad. Mm. And, you know, Paul, we've covered some really demonic stuff. And I've done a lot of research. I've immersed myself in this particular case. And I have just gone... Because when I, when I left the New South Wales Police Force, my father, uh, whose anniversary for his death was just a few days ago, he was the editor for the Australian Police Journal. Yes. Now, when you revealed that to us on the show, I can't remember how many months ago it was, but then we realised that technically speaking, grandfather, father and son all worked in some way with the police, Mm. around the police, yeah. Mm. And my father had an extremely good relationship with the editor, Barry Fay, who's uh, ex-New South Wales Fingerprint Bureau and one of the stalwarts of the Australian Police Journal. And he and my father became great friends. And my father, up until just a few years ago, he would still receive the Australian Police Journal. Now, back in the 1970s and 80s, the Australian Police Journal, what what would now be called a restricted publication. It was not for common, you know, viewing. Mm -hmm. The reason being that the word censorship and that magazine parted company so all the photographs of all the most sort of gruesome and grotesque murders rapes arsons bikey shootings um they they just whacked them in they just they just took actual crime scene actual photos photos. in there yeah so you know there were it was bad even for police yeah but i remember vividly Mm -hmm. the story that we're about to embark on in the Australian Police Journal, it was so graphic, so methodical. What we people outside of of you know um, institutions like police forces, what we don't think about, we we get to to read the headline: such and such murderer, such and such a person, mass mass murderer, serial killer, arrested, jailed, we move on. But the work 
There were so many police involved in this case. And I hate to say this, Paul and dear listeners, but there were some major fuck-ups in this investigation. So bad. So, and to have just been involved in stuff-ups that technically may well have led to more deaths, it's, it, it's a tough pill to swallow. And what I've realised, because when you initially look at the case and you do your, your sort of fairly, you know, brief research, there's not a lot of information about this. It's very condensed, would you not agree? Uh, Wikipedia, for example, they, yeah. just, they just give you an overview. And I was, sort of, I was sort of having a tug of war in my mind about, hang on a sec, I know that there was incredibly deep, you know, sort of very, very involved, very graphic information. And I wanted to, to sort of find it. And, of course, I've managed to find a lot of it. And I've found more than I actually knew about and, quite frankly, more than I really wanted to know. Yeah. Because we're talking about something that I think had a very big impact on the psyche of this country. Because something that people used to do a lot of, and I, I'm, I'm going to say guilty of... Hitchhiking and backpacking, right? Hitchhiking and backpacking. Yeah. And... You know, this location, what I'd love everyone to do all over the world after this podcast, go to your, your, your map, um, go, to, go to some sort of map format mm-hmm. and check out the Belangolo State Forest. Have a look at it and you'll note when you look at it that to the right of the forest is a yellow line. It's called the M31. That's the Hume Highway. If you want to drive from Sydney to Melbourne, mm-hmm. you get on the Hume Highway. And it takes you through some of the most beautiful, beautiful places in New South Wales. And if you're driving to, for example, well, there's obviously Melbourne, but there's also Canberra, mm-hmm. and you come across this sign, and as you're heading south, it's on your right, and it says Belangolo State Forest. Whenever you go into a state forest, there are signs and they say, make sure you lock your car. Um, don't have any valuables showing when you go, for example, fossicking for mushrooms. That might sound a bit obscure, the mushroom um, connection, Paul, but Belangolo Forest is famous for its mushrooms. And the sad thing about the forest is that it's about 3,500 hectares. It has the oldest plantation trees in New South Wales that were first established in 1919 by the New South Wales government. So it's a government-owned property. It's mm-hmm. maintained. It's got, it's got four-wheel drive tracks, but it's, it's really quite famous. But every time you see the name Belangolo and every reference to that specific location, it always mentions the murders. Yeah. And Paul, I'm just going to just touch on this very briefly, but what a lot of people might not know is that there are three separate murderers. There's Ivan Milat, responsible for what are known as the Belangolo or the Backpacker murders. But Paul, there were two other murders perpetrated by two other offenders. 
So it's actually almost a mini killing ground. Right. Which is kind of... You wonder whether people are drawn to these locations due to sort of folklore. I've never been into the forest. Well, we should. We should. should. And I was looking at photographs this morning and there is a beauty Mm. and a serenity, but also this something that quite frankly gives me the heebie-jeebies. Yeah. And I just... if, if, If you and I visit, Paul... It'll be under the guise of hunting for mushrooms, mm-hmm. and it'll be during the day. But honey, okay. Look, part of the reason this case interests me, Dad, is the fact that it was going on. I mean, this is often the case, but so much was happening for so many years before it even reached the public consciousness and before the police started investigating. But it wasn't until September 1982 that things really kicked off in terms of press, right? Mm. So there's a guy called Keith Caldwell, as you know, It's September of 1992, the same year as the Barcelona Olympics. I was at St. John's Primary School at that point. I was very young, and I have Mm. a faint memory of these stories on ABC News. Mm. So Keith Caldwell is doing an orienteering course in this area with a guy called Ken Siley, okay? Mm. And so they're working their way through Belangelo, and Ken had done this area quite a bit, so he's taking uh, Keith Caldwell through. And they stop at this place, Executioner's Drop. And again, Australia has a proud tradition of naming places, you know, really depressing things. So Executioner's Drop, right? Mm. And then they smell something kind of terrible and they start Mm. looking for the smell. Mm. If you were in the woods, Dad, Mm. and you smelled what smelled like a possible dead body, would you Mm. go looking for the body or would you just call the cops at that point? No, no, I'd definitely go. Look, because... These guys, these orienteering guys, and mm. orienteering is quite a bizarre activity. Um, what happens, Paul, is that you would at least want to know whether it was in fact, and quite, and more than likely, a mm. kangaroo, for example. Right, okay. And when they approached this rotting, decomposed carcass, uh-huh. the first carcass, and they looked at it, they actually thought that it was a leg bone of a kangaroo. When they got closer Mm -hmm. and they saw what appeared to be fur, so mentally you are preparing yourself for something. A decaying animal, right? A decaying animal. And these are orienteering guys who really, you know, they basically live and breathe bush, Mm -hmm. okay? And as they get closer, they begin to realize that what they thought was fur is actually hair, human hair. And the bone they thought was an, um, a leg bone turned out to be an arm bone of a human. Is this particularly well hidden? Is it lying out in the open? What kind of a... I mean, had the killer made any attempt to conceal this? The killer, mm-hmm. actually, this is something I only learned very recently, he would construct a kind of like a like a canopy but it was constructed over the body like he'd create a framework and then he'd cover that with with brush and it's a pine forest so you know it it's quite that that struck me as being very unusual why not just throw leaves it didn't go to a great deal of trouble in hiding the body and in a perverse sort of 
almost fateful um, in, in, in relation to the discovery of the bodies is that, and this is really sad for me to say this, but I'm going to put it, on, put it out there, it's fortuitous that the first two bodies that the orienteering people found were the last to be murdered. And that's very important, Paul, because, because with forensic examination, the bodies still had organs. Oh, I see. Yeah. And they could then work out what had happened. So they find the last two to go missing. Now, they were found on the 19th of September 1992, okay? Yeah. But these two people, Caroline Clark and Joanne Walters, both British backpackers, Yes. they had met in Australia. Right. Okay. They were last seen in April of that year. That's only five months prior. And the parents, two sets of families in England, they ultimately came out to Australia. And there is a memorial for the backpackers in that forest. And it was incredibly traumatic. But the police at that stage did not know that they had a serial killer. Okay, so this is these are victims six and seven in a string of seven, but at this point, that connection has not been made, right? Correct. So they find the remains hidden in a way which I would say indicates... I mean, I think that would draw more attention to the body, but that's probably not you know, um, the killer's intent. What kind of a state were they in and what had actually happened to these two young girls? Because I'm looking at photos of them and they look like... I mean, I keep thinking about Anne, you know, my sister... Mm who was, again, traveling the world at the, you know, in, in her early, sorry, late teens, early 20s. And they just look so normal and happy. And I know that's always the case. But what did this killer do to them? And we're probably, we probably should offer a trigger warning at this point because, frankly, what happens to these seven backpackers is some of the worst bodily trauma you'll experience in loose units. But how were Clark and Walters found? What happened to them? How did they die? Cause of death. Mm. The forensic pathologist, who very interestingly was assigned the case for, I don't want to give, I don't want to sort of give too much away. Mm. Let's just say that in this terrible story, Dr. Peter Broadhurst was the forensic pathologist who was assigned the entire, he, he did every post mortem. Yeah. And whilst post mortems are unpleasant, um, look, the, whilst the bodies were badly decomposed, what they had to do, and this is something that I you know, used to get involved in a fair bit when I was in forensics, is that the bodies had to be removed from the forest. Okay? And yep. they transported them to the, you know, the, the Glebe Morgue, which as listeners who have sort of been following this podcast for several years will know that at the time it was the largest mortuary morgue in the Southern Hemisphere. And it, had a, it was on Parramatta Road. It's just been demolished. And weirdly, it's now going to be a super ambulance centre, which is kind of a bit creepy. It's something that I find of, kind of find a bit, I don't know, weirdly disturbing. Yeah. It's opposite Sydney University. Now, 
what they do is, the first thing they do is they weigh the bodies, okay? And then with in Joanne's case, they x-rayed her body and what they're looking for are bullets or other metallic objects, obviously. Now, there weren't any. And then Carolyn, her body, bearing in mind they're pretty badly decomposed, she she basically, when they used X-ray, they just they found four b- bullets in her body. And then, of course, the the doctor then begins the external examination, checking the entire bodies for physical evidence. Now, Joanne's shirt and hands showed traces of dark hairs, and and this is really upsetting, listeners, but they found the rotting remains of a cloth that had been shoved down her throat. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. It was still in situ. And there were other samples of materials inside the throat suggesting strangulation. Okay. And then they have to do an internal examination. Now, I mean, there was no sign of um, of sexual assault. And I mean, I'm not going to go into the specifics of how they figure that out, but you can leave that up to one's imagination. But um, that was sort of a slightly controversial um, sort of, conclusion because of the extremely bad decomposition of the bodies 
then what they do is they get hair and nail samples which they take obviously to be to be and they do you know swabs and then you know they look for for sperm samples obviously and then in Joanne's case her chest showed three severe like really really deep stab wounds to the right side of her one to the left further stab wound to the neck and then what happened was they then rolled the, the the forensic pathologist rolls the body over and then he he described it as he looked at her back that there'd been a frenzied attack okay they, were, mm-hmm. they found further wounds on the back another two stab wounds on the left five more on the right of the spine and so she had 14 stab wounds in all and some of the stab wounds had cut her spine was that on purpose the speculation yeah is that and this is so terrible to even think about but the speculation is that whenever there were two victims the spine would be severed not to kill simply to render the person totally helpless and immobile now one can hypothesize as to why that was done and the general consensus is that it was done so that one person could watch what was happening to the other person so they're alive eyes open but can't move pretty pretty horrendous then they found there were some of the ribs had been totally severed this is by a knife by the way yeah but there were no defensive wounds which normally occur paul you know that they normally occur when you are being attacked particularly with a knife and you defend yourself yeah and quite often you lose fingers terrible lacerations yeah fingers hands arms there were no defensive wounds so and the fact that they had a a gag and a neck ligature in as far as the forensic pathologist was concerned it indicated that the killer was completely in control during the murder okay that would take a firearm of some sort i assume no a bowie knife oh god terrible okay then with carolyn clark's body her arms were stretched above her head and she had a red cloth wrapped around her arms and she had bullet holes that were clearly visible through the decaying cloth. Okay. So they removed the cloth really carefully and then the extent of the injuries becomes evident. She'd been shot 10 times. No. And there were, yeah, right into the into the skull. Hang on. What? I mean, why? Sorry, I know I'm trying to kind of project meaning onto a crazy person, onto a violent psychopath, but... Why does anyone need to shoot somebody who you've got under complete control 10 times? It's a different way of killing. That was one of the things about this this particular case that will that will become sort of more prominent as we move forward in time and that is that there were varying techniques used but one of the techniques that was consistent was the spinal the severing of the spine. Okay. So 
but this particular person was shot as many as 10 times they they her face was shattered you know the jaw but the thing is paul that they then began to realize that she'd been shot while she was on her back sorry on her stomach and you know the ballistics experts they're present during the postmortems i've been to a postmortem where firearms are involved and mm-hmm. these postmortems they they take a long long time yeah but um yeah they collected um many many cartridge shells which are really really important at the scene and then they're saying that um in a very unusual step a professor at the division of forensic medicine john hilton he was the head of forensic medicine who released details of the findings to a large group of reporters who had gathered outside the morgue. And he was not accustomed to giving media conferences. And it says, and I quote, that he spoke in a faltering, hesitant voice. Even though he was an experienced pathologist and forensic scientist, he was obviously disturbed by the extent of the injuries and the sheer brutality of the attack. That's coming from someone who is the head of the Division of Forensic Medicine. And this really, really... And bearing in mind that at this stage, and I'm going to use my words judiciously, but we only had two potential victims. Well, I mean, the first body was found by the orienteers that we discovered, that we discussed, right? Mm. And so the next morning, the police got there and then they discovered the second victim's body 30 metres or 98 feet away from the first victims, and then they used dental records to confirm that it was Clark and Walters they were looking for, right? Correct. But but then apparently they searched the area and they ruled out any further missing bo- like people in the area. So they ruled out that there were any more bodies in the area. Um, but there were, right? Mm. I mean, there were five more in the area because, like you said, those were the two final victims in the sort of chain of people who were who were killed. I mean, if you're a police officer who searches that area and goes, nope, all done, that's it. I mean, how do you feel when a year later more bodies start showing up? Do you feel culpable, like you could have done more? Or is oh, it compl- yeah. Look, okay. as, we'll, as we will reveal over time, there were some just terrible, terrible things, some yeah. just unbelievable things. I mean, reports were lost. Some of them were filed that held information that was, well, one bit of information that, I'm not going to mention now, basically was the final nail in the coffin of the uh, of the offender. Yeah, okay. Um, but, Paul, the second two bodies that were found, yeah. James Gibson and Deborah Everest, they were hitchhiking. They were going to a conservation, which is rather sweet. Because conservation rallies were not that common back then. And they were heading south. But... I heard it was a music festival. No, no. no. Heading to Albury? No? Yeah, yeah. yeah. But not not music. It was a conservation festival. Paul, when they found their bodies... In October 1993, right? Well, they were last seen in 1989, in December. That's almost, that's more than three years. Yeah. They'd so been, the body, 
their bodies show up, you know, yeah. about a, a bit over a year after the first two victims were found. Yeah. Yeah. But they'd been missing for almost four years. Jesus. Okay. So this had happened years before the first British backpackers. Mm-hmm. So this is the second lot of bodies. But we know that Belangelo State Forest is south of Sydney. But there's a place in Sydney, north of Sydney, up near Hornsby, Barara, and it's a really remote place. On the side of the road, someone found a camera and backpack. The name on the backpack had been cut off, but inside the backpack was the name of James Gibson. And in that backpack was his camera that was damaged. It had obviously been thrown out of a motor vehicle. Mm -hmm. But is that not incredible? So far north. Yeah. So it's an hour north of Sydney and Belangelo's two hours south. There's a three-hour travelling distance between these two locations. I have got my own theory about that, which I'm not going to talk about it just yet. Okay. But it's very, very important in terms of what the murderer did for a living. Interesting. Okay. Well, because it's so... So, it's just I, this. I'm like sort of wanting to just blurt it all out. It's, it's tough. Skip um, to the yeah. Skip to the reveal. Hmm. I mean, they're both 19 years old at this point, right? So Deborah Everest and James Gibson, 19. They're 19 years old. That is so young, and they went missing, like you said, on the 29th of December, which is a Friday, right? Hmm. And they weren't found until well, they weren't found until four years later. Hmm. Yeah. Um. They, yeah, everything I've read indicates that they were kind of hippies. They're a little bit, again, just normal young people, right? Mm. Now, I hate to cut straight to the chase, but did they find these? Because the thing that keeps grabbing me, and I'm sure seizes the imagination of true crime buffs the world over, is this really upsetting element where he severs the spinal cord. Um. Were these same spinal wounds present on these two victims? <clears throat> okay. These these victims, the, the next two, mm-hmm. in terms of being found chronologically, not as per order of operation in terms of timeline of murder. Yeah. So their bodies were taken back. And what the what they did at the, the morgue, and here's something very interesting that I did not know about, but they sure. actually, and this is a little bit kind of creepy, but they boiled the bones. They boiled them. Why? In a special solution to clean the skeletons to make the injuries easier to identify. Isn't that incredible? So if there's a deep spinal injury, you want to kind of get yeah. down to yeah. the bone, right? Yeah, okay. so Dr. Bradhurst, he started with James and there was a bit of decaying matter that accompanied the remains and they sift through them. They find several hand and foot bones, some jewellery, some buttons. And then as the remains begin to take shape, the extent of the wounds becomes clearer then they found that one stab wound had penetrated the mid-thoracic spine, slicing upwards through three vertebrae, splitting the canal holding the spinal column. As with the previous bodies, the wound would have paralysed the victim first. To do so much damage to a young, healthy body would have taken great physical strength. Oh, God. Okay? And then, like the first two, we can talk about terrible stab wounds you know, puncturing the breastbone mm-hmm. remember he's got two people he yeah. has to 
immobilize at least one person first. And then this is just all done with a terribly big knife. And look, there were many, many more stab wounds that they know would have occurred but didn't touch the bones. So, you know... It's all, and the, the wounds in terms of the size and the weapon were all very similar type wounds to Walters and Clark. And then the second skeleton, which is skeleton number four, uh-huh. smaller skeleton, and she was in poorer condition. Part of her jaw was broken away, several fractures at the base of the neck and skull, and there were four slash marks to the forehead. It's just so. And these are not fatal, um, you know, cuts, by the way. But these knife wounds sort of were etched into the skull near the base of the hairline. Yeah. But then on the back was another um, sort of slicing motion up into the spine. And then they find her... They go back to the site and they sort of spread out looking for more clues. And then about 30 feet away from where they found the girl, they found a black bra. And get ready for this. The black bra had stab wounds through each cup of the bra. Which means that she was wearing that bra when he stabbed her breasts. And then... Yeah, it's pretty fucked up, isn't it? So what happens now is I'm casting my mind into the, I'm casting myself into the mind of a investigative task force, presumably going okay. So we had two murders, mm. two bodies show up. Yep. Now we have a totally separate set of murders in the same area with a very similar level of violence inflicted upon them, the similar spinal wounds, right? Mm. Mm. At this point, are they beginning to? Do you think? go, all right, we need to start looking at missing persons cases because now it's possible that we've got a serial killer on our hands. Yes, they, they, they started off with just four detectives uh-huh. and it starts to grow and then they get some heavy hitters in. Then they start to really, um, you know, look, the, the head of the investigation was Clive Small, <clears throat> who became a superintendent. Yeah. Quite a, quite a famous and, you know, pretty, pretty amazing police officer. And he was at a press conference and when they start to talk about the potential, because you never really like to go go hard and freak people out in case yeah. it's not. But, yeah. you know, they sort of start, they've got four bodies and then they're starting to get more and more police in, doing more and more searching. They even had police from the Redfern Police Academy, where I went, mm-hmm. you know, just young trainees out there, CES, or multiple volunteers. And at a press conference, Clive Small famously said, we are a country of 17 million people. We have 17 million suspects. And we're going to work from there and narrow it down, down, down. That seems... Hmm. Sounds extreme. Sounds but, extreme. But the police definitely had a, had a, had a good idea. Um, and, of course, they don't, they don't let the cat out of the bag necessarily because also they have a very, very strong desire, probably, even though in hindsight, all of the victims that they know of are deceased. But they also have to consider, is the person still working, applying his trade? And there have been, uh, without without giving anything away, there have been 
people that have theorised about this particular offender that he may have committed as many as 37 murders. And as will be revealed possibly in next week's podcast, um, he was charged 20 years prior to these events with a virtually identical MO, modus operandi, which is very disturbing. It is. means he was on the radar. Well, next week we're going to look at this person who we've been referring to sort of in roundabout ways, but it's Ivan Milat. Next week we're going to look at Ivan Milat and try and figure out how somebody could do the things that he did. So next week on Loose Units, The Shadow Files, we look at Ivan Milat. Later on this week, we are going to continue with our journey into absolute rampant but much-needed idiocy with Loose Units' loose ends. In the meantime... Thank you so much for listening once again to another episode of Loose Units to Shadow Files. Thank you for joining us on our trip into Belangelo State Forest. It's going to get pretty intense over the coming weeks, so make sure you strap in. Stay safe, everyone, and we will see you soon for more Loose Units. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.